And I will read a bit selectively in this first section. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And it goes on a while longer. And then we get to verse 17. So all generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Hmm. All right. One of the things that uh, I like to do from time to time is watch different documentaries that are available on Netflix, and one that uh, my wife and I watched several years ago was a documentary called God Grew Tired of Us, which is the story of the lost boys of Sudan, of Sudan who, amidst the civil war and the major distress in that country, were given uh, visas to come to the United States and live with us, protected from the violence of their homeland. And so they are transported from a place without electricity, without air conditioning, without convenience, without any modern uh, accoutrements at all, and are dropped right in the middle of New York City. And the, the movie is fascinating, showing just how much of what we take for granted was absolutely mind-boggling and revolutionary to them who came from the most simple and, and basic uh, lifestyle. But one of the scenes that struck me and has, has just held with me for such a long time was their experience of our first Christmas, their, their first Christmas here in the United States. And they went to a mall, and they saw all of the wrapping paper, they saw all the glitter, the tinsel, they saw the Santa Claus, they saw all of this uh, marketing and uh, busyness about Christmas. And one of the boys was just dumbfounded, and he said, where is all of this 
in the Bible. He said, my Bible only tells me about Jesus and his birth. And where I come from, Christmas is about celebrating Jesus and trying to live for him. And I think it was a very interesting insight that came from that child that perhaps should remind all of us, and I hope as we get into this sermon, remind us afresh that Christmas is not about all of these distractions. It is not about all of these other things that we have added to it. And in fact, I think it it says something about how lightly we have grasped what Christmas is, that we feel like we need to stuff it with toys and myths and traditions that are a faint candle to the amazing news that God sent his son to be born in our midst, that we have a baby who came from heaven to redeem us and take us with him. That is the message of Christmas. And somehow in America, or in our, in our developed traditions, we have gotten to a place where that story does not hold weight in our hearts. What holds weight in our hearts is peppermint shakes and eggnog and the best toys under the tree. That is why we are having this series called It Will Be, to try and remind us of what an amazing story Christmas is. Christmas is the story that guarantees to us that the Lord's Prayer, where we pray that it be on earth as it is in heaven, that it will be, because Jesus Christ came to live and fulfill what we could not fulfill for ourselves. It is because Jesus Christ came at Christmas that when we pray the Lord's Prayer and say, for thine is the kingdom, and thine is the power, and thine is the glory forever, amen, that we know it will be. Because Jesus has come to fulfill all of those things. Advent reminds us that as it is in heaven, it will be on earth. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we looked at two weeks ago the words, For thine is the kingdom. And we saw the shocking way that God secures the kingdom for us. It comes through Jesus the King descending in lowliness. God's kingdom comes to us through Jesus' lowliness. Last week we looked at for thine is the power and we see that God's power comes to us through Jesus' weakness, through being a baby wrapped dependently in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger so that one day he would be laid in a tomb. It is by Jesus' weakness that God's power comes. Today we are going to look at for thine is the glory. And when we look at this passage, when we look at this phrase out of, out of Matthew 1, as we look at Matthew 1 to understand this phrase, we are going to discover that God's glory comes to us through Jesus' dishonor. Through Jesus' dishonor. In fact, as we go through this passage, we are going to see three dishonors that Jesus took on to bring us into God's glory that we find in the gospel that the Lord of glory comes to bear our dishonor should reawaken us to the Christmas message. When the Lord of glory comes to bear dishonor, 
How could any other story or trinket or tradition possibly hold any appeal to us when God has done this very thing? Why do we need to hear this message today? Not only do we need this to to reorient ourselves to the true Christmas, but knowing that Jesus came to take on our dishonor speaks very directly to our lives. If you are here today with something from your past that you can't change, but that defines you, that shapes every day, that seems to intrude on your peace and your potential, this message is for you. If you feel that you don't belong, that you don't fit in, that you don't qualify for one group or another, that you're an outsider, this message is for you. If you are here with deep disappointment from your parents or from something in your family history that you feel has disadvantaged you or slanted you against the success or the life that you wanted to have, if you bear a wound from your family history, this message is for you. If you have ever borne a reputation that caused people to not like you or trust you or accept you, this message is for you. If you have ever been misjudged or slandered, if you have ever become known for a sin or some foolishness that you cannot separate yourself from, this message is for you. If you feel like you have to constantly hide or cover who you really are because if people knew what you were or what you did, you would never be accepted, you would be ruined, this message is for you. All of us need to know the message that Jesus, to bring us into God's glory, took upon our dishonor. As we go to this passage, we're going to look closely at three dishonors that Jesus took to bring us into God's glory. And it is because he did this that if you were described by anything I just said, Christmas is a place where your hopes can be fulfilled. Let's now look at this passage to see the three dishonors that Jesus took on to bring us into God's glory. The first I want you to see, are you doing the slides? Uh, Awesome. Jesus, the first dishonor Jesus takes on, Jesus took on a sordid family history. Jesus took on a sordid family history. And this is coming from that genealogy that perhaps many of us uh, rush through to get to the good stuff. But this genealogy is so important for our understanding of Jesus and the gospel. There are three observations I want us to take from this genealogy this morning. First, I want us to recognize the prestige of the genealogy. The prestige of the genealogy. We see in verse 1 that the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What Matthew is seeking to do in this genealogy is to tell us that Jesus has royal pedigree. He comes from the line of David. He is a full, uh, honored recipient to the throne. He has a claim on the throne because he is in the bloodline of David. Even more, he is a true Israelite. 
He comes from the bloodline of Abraham. Our Savior has the blood of Abraham, the blood of true Israel, and the blood of David, Israel's true king. He has pedigree. He has a rightful claim to the throne. The second observation that we need to have from this genealogy is the purpose of the genealogy. We see in this genealogy that God's promises, which have been made over the last 2,000 years to the original reader of this text, have come to fulfillment. The story of Abraham, we are told in Genesis 12, that through him would come a nation that all nations would be blessed through, that he would have a seed, his offspring would fulfill the promise of Abraham. In the story of David, which came several hundred years later, we are told that David would have a king who would always be upon the throne. We have these promises that are sown centuries earlier into the story of Israel. And then when you get to the book of Matthew, you are told all of it ties together. All of it comes to a conclusion. All of it meant something. These aren't just words that were spoken and kept by ancient people that gave them hope in their day. They were truly promises by the God of history to bring to pass his Savior. All of the promises that you have been raising your children in, that a Messiah was going to come, who was going to be through the line of Abraham, who would be a king through the line of David, in spite of all of the history that came to seem to take that whole story off track with Babylon and deportations and overthrows, all of that has not gotten in the way of the historical fulfillment that God is bringing you a Savior. And so when we look at this genealogy, we should recognize that God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus but additionally, if you come here today with a skeptical opinion about the Bible, like how, how should I treat it as truth? Why should I look at the scriptures as something more legitimate than the Book of Mormon or the, or the scriptures of Hindu or the, the um, Quran? It's this right here. This couple of paragraphs, which are hard for us to read because they're not exciting, are telling us that God has worked in history from generation to generation. He made a promise to Abraham in the year 2000 B.C. that comes to fulfillment in the beginning of the modern era. He made a promise to David in 1000 B.C. that came to fulfillment a thousand years later. It is because of these genealogies which you cannot fake, you cannot fudge, that these promises which were in the history came to fulfillment is such a powerful testimony that you are reading a word authored by the one and only God of history. The third observation, though, that I want us to see from Jesus', Jesus genealogy is the sordidness of this genealogy. Matthew does something that he does not have to do. He, he, he mentions not just the fathers of Jesus' genealogy, which is the basic uh, way that we uh, do genealogies in, um, in Jewish culture, 
But he stops from time to time to mention various women in this genealogy. And he doesn't mention Sarah, the wife of Abraham, and all of her honor that is due her for her life. In fact, he doesn't mention many of the uh, quote-unquote noble women of the Old Testament. He instead picks four women who all have baggage. Pretty serious baggage. In verse 3, we are told about Tamar. Well, that was a union, a, a union to bring the next child that was through incest. Judah was deceived by Tamar, who played the role of a prostitute. Tamar was his daughter-in-law. And yet we are given Tamar called out in this genealogy. Then we see in verse 5 Rahab. Rahab was the Canaanite prostitute that gave the spies safe passage. She is brought in to this genealogy. We also see Bathsheba, who is not even mentioned by name. If you look at verse seven, uh, yeah, verse uh, six, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Matthew is reminding us in very explicit language: this wasn't a husband and wife. This was adultery. This was infidelity. And then we have in verse 5, we also have the mention of Ruth, who was a Moabite, a foreigner of a nation that was greatly despised by Israel. So what we see here are four women who seem to be singled out for their problems, for their baggage. Now we shouldn't just lay this all on the, on the feet of the women. Matthew isn't just calling out women, he is bringing to mind the bad apples of men too. For he doesn't mention Bathsheba in verse 6, he mentions it was David taking the wife of Uriah. He mentions Uriah. Why does he mention Uriah? Because David killed Uriah. Matthew wants to remind us that the genealogy of Jesus includes a murderer. Not just an adulterer, but a murderer. More, we, we have Ma- uh, Matthew picking up the story of Manasseh, mentioning that the king Manasseh is in the genealogy of Jesus. He doesn't mention every Davidic king. He skips over some for, for space. But he mentions Manasseh, probably the worst king in the history of Israel. He had his own son burned to death as a sacrifice. He was a gross idolater, and yet we find him in this story. We see that Jesus' genealogy includes much sordidness. The point, I believe here, that Matthew wants us to see is that Jesus enters our family, enters our family tree, warts and all. God with us means that there is hope for those who see themselves as sinners and outsiders. Because Jesus has come in to that story. And so we need to recognize as we come to the Christmas story, we have family baggage, don't we? We have family quirks, habits, 
Everyone in this room is saying, that's something my mom does. That's something my dad does. We're, 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 we're all facing the terror of becoming our parents, the very thing that we, we resolved not to be. And yet, year by year, we take on more of their appearance, more of their personality, more of their preferences, and they become less strange to us. Because our parenting, their parenting of us, have shaped us in ways that we have a very hard time resisting. We all have Cousin Eddie's, right? Christmas vacation, Cousin Eddie shows up. Every family's got a couple. And if you don't, it's because you're the Cousin Eddie. (laughs) Sorry to break it to you. But we all have, have a couple of those people like, how can that be the same blood in him that's in me? Worse, there are fixed things that come from our family tree. There's upbringing. There are things that some of us have uh, received from our parents that, that can't be undone. And they're part of our story. They're part of our fears. They're part of our judgment that is bent by it. Our parents have had a great influence on determining our station in life. If you were born into a poor family, it is very hard. If you're born into a family of a particular minority, it is very hard. And those things are things that we can't choose. You are born with family predispositions. I mean, there's a reason all of you people love LSU. It's a family thing. But it's not, it's not in your DNA. It's, 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 just, it's just what you have been raised to believe. Family sins. Many of us probably have experienced being associated with somebody else in our family who was a bad apple or a bad actor. Oh, your brother or your sister or uncle or nephew of so-and-so. It causes us shame. We're discovering more and more our genetics. We have nothing to do with genetics, but we're discovering that just by being born by these two parents, we might have genes that determine something about us that's horrendous. I had a friend in in Kansas City who was in the research department for finding genetic markers for breast cancer. And he was convinced that if you had this particular genetic code, the percentages were like above 90% that you would have breast cancer. And we're finding more and more and more of those things. We're finding that in our own genetic code that we got from our parents, we are programmed for destruction. We can't do anything about that. Even worse, as we come to the awareness of, of who we really are, we're fallen. We're bent towards sin, towards evil, Think of your thought life. Think of your desires. How many of those would you like to hand in front of God and say, this is who I am. This is what I want. How many husbands would like their wives to hear all the thoughts that went through their head? Or vice versa. That fallenness is something that we have inherited too. We are told in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. 
The fact of the matter is we come into this world and the deck is already stacked against us. We have family history that is sorted and that has predetermined our potential. Some of us have had more potential taken away than others. But we know what it is like to be part of a sordid family history. And this is what makes Christmas good news. Jesus brings good news to all who are weighed down with family baggage. Jesus, the glorious one, takes on a family of sinners and outsiders to be his own. He takes on the worst He takes on the most excluded, and he says, you can be part of my family. All you have to do is admit that you need him. But there are some here who perhaps don't see the sordidness of their family history. They have had a silver spoon. Life has turned out okay. I would remind you what John the Baptist said to the pedigreed Pharisees who came out to his baptism. And he said, you brood of vipers, do not think that because you are a son of Abraham that you will be saved. For God is able to raise up sons of Abraham from these stones. What is being said there is, your family history cannot save you, and your family history cannot disqualify you. Because Jesus Christ becomes the family that saves. And every single one of us can put aside our sordid family history and be known as a child or a daughter of God. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus, anyone can be part of his family. Listen to what we are told in Galatians chapter three twenty six: In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Do you see what is said there? The genealogy of Jesus in all its pedigree as a son of Abraham you receive by faith in him. You are not defined by your family history. Because of the gospel, you become the offspring of Abraham, the heir of the kingdom. So Jesus took on a sordid family history. That was the first dishonor we see. But there is a second dishonor. Jesus took on a scandalous reputation. Jesus took on a scandalous reputation. Now I assume most of you are like me, and you defend your honor at all costs. You hear somebody slander you or misspeak for you, and you are compelled to vindicate, to correct, to put that falsity, that rumor aside. We cannot afford to be dishonored. Our name cannot be slandered. It is something deeply cherished. But when we look at the Christmas story, we see that Jesus, the glorious one, endured 
took on a scandalous reputation. Look at verse 18. Mary was found to be with child. This is before Joseph and Mary were married. And it is easy, 2,000 years later, after we have sung so many Christmas songs, to lose sight of the scandal of Mary's pregnancy. But it doesn't take much to get back into that frame of mind. For imagine if somebody came to you and said, God just put a baby in me, honest. Whether you would believe that story. Whether you would say, okay, it happened again. (laughs) No. That's not how it happens. That's not true. Babies do not come without somebody having sex. And in this culture, an unmarried woman being found with child was an incredible scandal. Don't believe me? Look at how Joseph wants to handle the situation. Does Joseph believe Mary? You know Mary said, I got a story. It's a big one. Better sit down. But it's true. God put a baby in me. Do we have in this story evidence that Joseph said, all right, I'm going with it. I believe that. No. Joseph knows something dirty happened here. Something sinful happened here. Something treacherous. And so he has resolved that he must divorce her. And the only question is how to do it with the least amount of mess. But that's his human calculation. And can we argue with him? It's a very reasonable conclusion that Mary is with a child because she was with someone else. A great scandal. I mean, here's what we are being told from this story. That Mary got married with a baby bump sticking out of her dress. And all of the, you can imagine, all of the shame, all of the discomfort that people would have seeing a pregnant bride, that's what Jesus' mother was. And that reputation was not something that just disappeared. If you go to the book of John, Jesus is having a dispute with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees say back to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one Father, God. Now why? Why do you think they said that very bizarre statement to Jesus? We were not born of fornication. Because the rumors were always circulating that Jesus was born of an illegitimate union. That Jesus was the child of fornication. And that is something that was being used to say, this man cannot be the Messiah. He cannot be the prophet. Because he has been born of fornication. And because he was, had that reputation, 
that was slander used against him. But here is the irony. Here is the irony of Christmas. For Jesus to be born without sin, to be born by the Holy Spirit, he had to bear the reputation of being a child of a sinful union. Think about that. To make it a Holy Spirit conception where there is no doubt about it, he had to be conceived by a virgin. And that meant he had to take on the prevalent and reasonable assumption that that woman was pregnant through fornication. Because how many people got an angelic revelation about the truth? Only Joseph. And that is why Jesus, being, being brought into this world, took on a scandalous reputation. The heir of David bore the rumor of illegitimacy. Think about that. But there are more reputations that Jesus took on to be God with us. We are told in Matthew that he was called a friend of sinners, that he was called a friend of tax collectors. We are told that he was rumored to be a drunkard, that he was called a glutton. His own family in Mark 3.21 wanted to arrest him because he was out of his mind. He was called crazy. And the religious leaders said, you're doing all of this work by the power of Beelzebul. They were saying, he's demonic. These are the reputations that Jesus bore. Jesus does this so that he can be with us, so that he can enter into our history, so that he can be close to us. And so if you are here today with a scandalous reputation yourself, whether earned or unearned, whatever reputation you have, Jesus brings good news to people with bad reputations. The one whose name is hallowed by the angels bore our slander that he might come to us with his love. Read Isaiah 53 verse 2. This is the the Lord of glory. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus, the Lord of glory, endured people turning their faces from him for embarrassment. He restores our soiled names by being soiled by us. Go back and remember as we talked about the story of Jesus with the woman and Simon the Pharisee. The woman comes and washes his feet because she is so overwhelmed with love for Jesus. And Simon is sitting there. And what is he saying in his mind? He's saying, if this man really were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman that is. Touching his feet. He would know. If he really were a righteous, holy person, he wouldn't put up with that filth at his feet. 
What does Jesus do? He speaks to Simon right in his thoughts. And he says, this woman and all of her reputation has been forgiven much. And I say to her, go in peace. Jesus raises that woman up, removes the soil of her reputation. He vouches for her. And he does that at the cost of Simon saying, you're no prophet. You're no man of God. Jesus took on the soil to wash this woman clean and let her leave with a reputation of whole. How beautiful is that? He restores her by vouching for her to her accuser. And he does the very same to us. He tells us in Matthew, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. That means whatever scandal, whatever sin, whatever soil, whatever pollution... Whatever shame you have on your name, if you acknowledge Jesus, he will acknowledge you in his glory in heaven and say, you are mine. I take you all and I love you. Jesus took on a scandalous reputation so that he could raise you up to be a glorious child of God. But there is more. Not only does Jesus take on a sordid family history, not only does Jesus take on a scandalous reputation, but the third dishonor that Jesus took on to bring us into God's glory is that he took on the shame of our sins. Jesus took on the shame of our sins. Look at verse 19. Before the angelic intervention, Joseph knew what was going to happen to Mary. A pregnant, unwed woman was going to be put to shame. There is no alternative for this woman in this culture. A woman who was pregnant out of wedlock was going to be put to shame. That baby bump was going to be judged. That woman was going to experience judgment for her apparent sins. Now Joseph tries to do it as quietly as possible, but quietly or not, this woman is going to bear the shame of a lifetime of having a child without a husband. And that child is going to bear the shame of that reputation with her. There is no getting away from shame because the law says that a woman who becomes pregnant out of wedlock is a sinner. Is a, is a person who has committed fornication. And the law puts people to shame when it is violated. Shame. Do you guys deal with shame? Do you experience the feelings of shame? I notice, incidentally, that all of you wore clothes today, thankfully. But if you go back to the second chapter of Genesis, 
the blessed condition of humanity was naked and unashamed. There was nothing to cover up. There was nothing to hide. There was no fear of exposure. There was no shame. And when the sin came into the garden, the first thing they noticed was, we're naked, cover me up. I don't want to be seen. I'm filthy. I'm unrighteous. I am wrong. And that condition continues. Every single one of us does not want to really be known. Every single one of us manicures our Facebook page to make us look truly good when in fact we've lost our temper, we've cussed, we've entertained all sorts of sordid thoughts. We are ashamed of who we really are. None of us are naked and unashamed. And in some respect, I am happy about that. Uh, Only, you know, you know why. Uh, All right. That's shame. Matthew reminds us that for sinful people, all the law can do is judge us guilty. Joseph's fear for Mary is a fear that we should all have. Who will not be put to shame? When all of your thoughts, all of your actions, all of your desires are laid in front of God, And he holds the law. Thou shall not kill. Thou shall honor your father and your mother. Thou shall not lie. Thou shall not commit adultery. Thou shall not covet. Thou shall honor your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Who of us will not be put to shame? We are all headed for shame. But the good news of Christmas is the Savior has come. The angel tells Joseph that the boy in Mary's womb is not of an illicit union. It is a holy child from the Holy Spirit. And for that, it is going to be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus literally means the Lord Yahweh is salvation. Thus, the angel is announcing to Joseph that the Lord will save his people from their sins. The angel reveals that Jesus is God in flesh, i.e. Emmanuel. It is God in flesh who will save us from our sins. Now, here's something that we have to remind ourselves of because we do not have the training in the Old Testament in the Torah that somebody like Joseph a follower of the law would. But here's the question you have to ask yourself. How are we saved from sins? We go back to the book of Leviticus and it explains it very simply. Leviticus 17.11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. You see, forgiveness required sacrifice. Forgiveness required payment for sins. The angel's message to Joseph is this. The boy that is being born is being born to bear the penalty of our sins. He is being born to be put to shame for us. 
And what is the Savior's shame? He is born and he is headed to a cross. And the cross was designed for maximum shame. Do you know what it means to bear the cross? It means to be stripped naked and to be hung there for every leering eye. Our Savior bore nakedness and bore our shame. Hebrews 12.2 says this, Looking to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He went through the shame. The shame of ridicule. The shame of people looking at him exposed, unprotected. The shame of all the people whom he loved mocking and jeering and accusing him of things he was not guilty of. Worse, the Lord of glory becomes the full repugnance of sin before God as he bears the shame for our sins. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, God made him to be sin. The righteous, sinless, holy one was made sin for us. The righteous one suffered the shame of the unrighteous. That the unrighteous, you and I, might receive him with him glory. What amazing grace has come to us at Advent. What amazing grace. Advent reminds us that when God came in Jesus, he took on our sordid family history. He took on our scandalous reputations. And he took on the shame of our sins so that you can share in his glory. He takes all of our dishonor so that he can give us all of his glory. I leave with this. Last question, last thought. What can you expect if you neglect such a great salvation? What can you expect if you were to say, thanks but no thanks? I'll take my own reputation to God. I'll take my own pedigree to God. I'll take my own righteous deeds to God. What can you expect if you neglect the one who said, I will take all the sordidness. I will take all of the disrepute. I will take all the shame of your sins. And you say, no thanks. What can you expect but to face the horror of the cross all by yourself in unending torment? That is what you are choosing when you say, I don't really need this salvation. So I beg you, 
Put your faith in Him, and He will take away all your shame, and He will give you all of His glory. As Paul tells us in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Let us pray. Father in heaven, the more we ponder your gospel, the more we ponder what you have done in sending your Son, that not only did he go from a high place to take on lowliness, that not only did he go from power to take on weakness, but that he went from glory to take on dishonor and shame and our sin. Father, what kind of grace is this? How can we respond to it? How can we say thank you, but to say, please, be my Lord and Savior. I want my Christmas to be about you, not junk. Father, Prepare your son room in our hearts. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And so we pray all together as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.